Anyways, we are in um, the third week of Jesus is Lord, and this theme is going to carry on through until I return. Uh, different subtopics to it. I want to open this morning in Revelation 21, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son, my daughter. So, Father, we look for the new, the new song, the new thing, the the revelation that you have in store for your church in this hour, O God. We ask you, Holy Spirit, to unfold it to our hearts and minds so that we understand and are enabled to do your will on earth as it is in heaven. That we would delight you in our obedience and bring glory to the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Somewhere along the way in the great journey and movement that has come to be called Christianity, we seem to have lost sight of the simplicity of Christ. Simply stated, Jesus is Lord. End of story. The beginning and the end of all things, the start and the finish, and if if that is true, do you believe it's true? Do you really believe it's true? Then he is and must remain Lord of all that is between those two points of reference. And in any area where we, through our actions, deny or disregard his lordship, we in turn invalidate the power and or blessings of the magnificent truth of what his lordship offers. When power and authority are legitimate, they are also beneficial. Just look at what the Alpha and Omega offers to us. He will dwell with us. We will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Sound good yet? 
for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And then, as if to affirm his own affirmation, he goes on to say, Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. It's finished. The writer of the book of Hebrews, when speaking of Jesus, puts it this way in Hebrews 12, 2. Looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. He's the author and finisher of my faith, of your faith. You don't write your own story. You didn't do this for yourself. He authored this. He will finish it. So here, now, for each one of us in this room who has come into a living relationship with Jesus, he is our alpha, our beginning. But I think sometimes that culture and educational and philosophical influences and the sudden explosive of, of free flow of information from all parts of the world to the Internet has made being a Christian really complex and sometimes complicated and a confusing endeavor. Add to that what both Scripture and the witness of history seem to confirm, that is the propensity of man in his fallen state his sin-influenced perception of relational positioning within any group of community will default to the idea that power and authority are best exercised through the use of domination and the restrictive control of others. In other words, a top-down, I have power over you, therefore have the right to dictate my will over your life model. And it seems to be the natural inclination of the human condition, as well as the great deception in the church. It is an unfortunate and tragic truth that throughout most of the Christian era, Christendom, that is the organized church in communion with world-dominating political structures, has been one of the most avid supporters of this mindset. Even when Jesus was here in the flesh introducing the kingdom of God and a values package that was intended to undo the ancestral status quo, he kept bumping into this issue. And interestingly enough, it was always with those closest to him. Here's some examples. In Luke 9:46, it says, An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. In Luke 22:24, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. I love this example because of the conversation that it emerges from in Mark 10. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again. Taking the twelve again. In other words, this isn't the first time he's tried to pull this off with them. He began to tell them 
what, is, what was to happen to him, saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Right? Now, just put yourself in their position. You've been hanging out with this guy for three years. He's at least your rabbi. He's at least your pastor, your teacher, something important to you. If you haven't already apprehended, this guy is God in the flesh. Right? You're somewhere in that category, and this is what he tells you is about to happen to him. And everything he says that's going to happen always seems to happen. How would you respond to that bit of news? Listen to the response. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Seeing you're going to only be around a little while longer, might as well get our two cents in. He said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, We are able. Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink with the baptism with which I am baptized. You will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Notice the fruit of these three incidents. Argument, dispute, and indignation. Sounds like the church. The quest for position and power will effectively drown out the call of the cross and blind you to the needs of others. I want to say that again. The quest for the position and power will effectively drown out the call of the cross and blind you to the needs of others, to whatever degree you are pursuing that. To that degree, there's a film over your spiritual eyes. The simplicity of position within the kingdom of God is found in the fact that Jesus is Lord, which automatically puts us in the position of servant and guarantees that our power is both delegated and constant. Jesus addresses the issue this way in Mark 10:42. Jesus called them to him and he said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be the first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Then just to put the icing on the cake, they have this encounter with a pagan Roman soldier who's a centurion. 
That means his religious beliefs are absolutely contrary to those of Jesus and his followers. He is part of the invading force that has conquered Israel, and he is an officer in the Roman army stationed there to enforce, and I mean enforce, capital letters, the Roman rule. Matthew 8, 5. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, what's he recognizing? Jesus is Lord, right? This guy sees it. Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Real faith, great faith as the King James Version calls it, is the ability to remain under authority and to be empowered enough by what another gives to be able to then turn and empower others to walk in real power. Real spiritual warfare, what I have come to understand to be effective warfare with no casualties is really an exercise in submission. During the heyday of the charismatic movement, the process of working out how to work with the power gifts, the church militant, supposing it was expressing some type of spiritual authority in challenging powers and principalities and intruding into spheres of influence that angels wouldn't touch. would quite often admonish the church to resist the devil and keep on resisting until he flees from you. Fast and pray and get into the word and proclaim who you are in Christ and stand on your authority as a soldier of Christ. Somehow we thought that through our own good effort, we could walk in a victory that was not our own. Christ is victorious. Jesus has defeated death hell and the grave. And he was more than clear in stating that without me you can do nothing. And although there is nothing wrong and actually everything right with doing any and all of those exercises, you know, fast, pray, read the word, the real power of the verse does not lie in the ability to resist. Listen to what the Apostle James actually says in James 4, 5. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says 
he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. That's his deposit in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. The real power is in, in the fact that Jesus is Lord, and we have been afforded the opportunity to draw near to him through the grace granted in humbly submitting to his lordship. And as we do, he in turn draws near to us, and the closer he is to us, the further away from us the devil will want to flee. Our power lies in our ability to remain under the authority of the one who is authority. Matthew 28:18. Jesus came and said to them, All authority, all of it, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So the one thing that I would say we should strive to avoid while living between the Alpha and the Omega of the Lordship of Jesus is the quest for power and authority. Power and authority that does not emanate from a servant's heart. One of the ways that we can do that is to KISS. You know that acronym? Yeah, I had to rewrite it. I've got, keep it simple, smarty. <laughs> I like sweetie, though. Sweetie, right? Hey, don't want to put that stupid one there. Keep it simple. In closing, I want to briefly give you three areas where I believe we have lost sight of the simplicity of Christ in the proclamation of, the apprehending of, and the empowering of the good news message that Jesus is Lord, starting in John 1.35. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, hmm, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. For it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and follow Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, 
the city of Andrew and Peter, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. I would like us, first off, to notice the simplicity of the proclamation in these verses. The model used here is relational evangelism in its simplest form. Someone says it because of who they are. I believe it. Do you know you have a sphere of influence like that? You affect the lives of those around you at that level. There are people who will look to you, will listen to you, will take what you have to say seriously. But notice the two disciples don't follow John. Eh? John says, behold the Lamb of God, they believe him. But they don't follow John following Jesus, they follow Jesus. We are commissioned to make disciples, but not to ourselves. The fact is, some people are very charismatic, and not only can they attract the following to themselves in Jesus' name, but they also thrive on the position they find themselves in. And the Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Be imitators of me. Now, you could leave it, and a lot of people leave it right there. Just do what I do. Just do what I say. But Paul says this, be imitators of me, even as I also am of Christ. You can impact the lives of others by imitating Jesus. This is called discipleship. And again, this is not rocket science. There really is simplicity to all of this. Just look at the dynamics. In its simplest terms, they leave their own life behind. They abandoned John. They abandoned their fishing nets, their tax collector tables, whatever else that they says to the world around them, this is what I do, this is who I am, and they follow Jesus so that they can see where he is, and when they do, they begin immediately to disciple others. Look at the interactions. Andrew to Peter and Philip to Nathaniel. We have found the Messiah. Who is he? Jesus is Lord. And when it is questioned by Nathaniel, I love Philip's response. He says this, come and see. Where did he get that? It's exactly what Jesus said, right? What are you looking for? Come and see. Come and see. You see, they're discipling immediately. They're repeating the words of Jesus, the words that captured their heart. They're giving to other men. They're discipling. 
It's exactly what Jesus said to them. They are discipling, they are imitating Jesus because Jesus is Lord. The evangelistic invitation to Jesus should be simple for a follower of Jesus. Come and see, because there can only be one of two answers. Right? Yes or no? A week ago, Monday, was it? Was it last Monday went to my mom's? Last Monday went down. My mom lives in Plainville, Mass., and she's 81 this month, having trouble with her pacemaker and feeling alone because all her kids are scattered all over the place. So we went down to spend the day with her and do some little repairs on her. It's a little double wide there. Take her out for lunch. So we're in the restaurant eating lunch, and down in the back corner booth, there are four elderly people, not like us, <laughs> probably in their 70s. And, and one guy has an oxygen thing in his nose, you know. But you know, I, I look at this guy, and it's like, bam! I feel God's presence, you know, and I'm thinking, oh, <laughs> go again. You know, I don't want to do this. I want to eat lunch, you know. And eye contact, you know, and this guy's looking at me like, why are you looking at me like this? You know, I can just do the whole meal. And I'm in my head arguing with God, you know. I just want to have some time with mom, you know. And at one point, I was almost crying. I was just feeling how much Jesus loved this man. So finish our meal, and the check comes, pay the check, and we get up, and Martha and mom head for the door, and I, I head right for this guy's booth. Introduce myself, shake his hand, and say, you know, I'm just a follower of Jesus. And, you know, in reading the Gospels, I know Jesus was connected with people, and awesome things would always happen, you know. And I've just been looking at you and feeling like God has something he really wants to say to you today, you know, if, if you'd be interested in hearing what that is. He paused for a minute, and he says, you know, quite frankly, I don't. You know, <laughs> all the air went out of my tires, you know. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> so I said, well, have, have a good afternoon. I go, and I sit in the car, and I said, come on, you know. What the heck was that? You know, all of that. Bang. All during that meal, you know, what was that? And this is simply what he said. He needed to be given the choice. And you needed to be obedient. Second Corinthians two fourteen, thanks be to God who is, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death to the other the fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So for him, perhaps it was a savor of death. I pray it was otherwise. So following Jesus is a simple decision. 
to essentially abandon all for the sake of the gospel. Simple, right? Let's try starting with just one thing. I am a fisherman who has become a fisher of men because Jesus is Lord. I am an alcoholic who is now sober because Jesus is Lord. I am a suicidal and I have embraced life because Jesus is Lord. Depressed, embracing joy. Angry, finding peace. A hater, feeling love. All because Jesus is Lord. You can start with one thing. Abandon those things and embrace Christ. It's simple. One step at a time. One day at a time. One issue at a time. It's being conformed into the image of Christ. It doesn't come like a lightning bolt. It's process. It's relationship. But the simplicity is Jesus is Lord. It makes it all doable. There's a quote from the School of Kingdom Ministry. So God makes Jesus to become sin. What happens on Calvary is simply this. God makes Jesus sin and puts sin back on the tree. Eve pulled sin off the tree. God in Jesus put it back on. Amazing. We make this thing too complicated. It's simple. Sin is back on the tree. We're back in the garden where we always were meant to be in relationship with the living God. And as you change, people will notice and ask, what's going on with you? And you can simply say, come and see. Come and see. It just made you a discipler. Come and see. Disciple him to Jesus. And I mean, isn't that how Jesus disciples his followers? In John 5, 19, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing, for whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. John 15, 15, No longer do I call you my servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. That's how he discipled. That's how we are to disciple. Come and see. Come and hear. Oh, did I tell you what Jesus spoke? Did I tell you what I learned in the Word today? Hey, read this. You ought to see what I read in the Scriptures this morning. Get a hold of this. The simplicity of hearing Jesus and speaking what you hear, seeing what Jesus is doing, and doing what he does is found in the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And the simplicity of that is found in God's desire to empower our lives with his spirit so that you can speak his words and do his works. Luke eleven thirteen, Jesus is speaking. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? To those who ask. 
you can receive power. Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses.